Good morning. It is so good to be with you this morning. Um, I get to back clean up on this series that we have called Vice, and uh, I'm excited about it. We could have taken this series on for another month easily, so it was difficult to figure out exactly what God wanted me to say today. But uh, let me just say that back in the day, and you may or may not remember this, depending on how historically challenged you are, um, Miami Vice came on the scene... And, um, and just unleashed not only this you know, crazy TV show and, and sent a few people into stardom, but also kind of took the world by storm and set unspeakable fashion trends. Does anybody remember this? Um, my husband could rock the linen suit. You know what I'm saying? The pastel blue linen suit with the, with the crew cut t-shirts underneath and, and specifically loafers with no socks, which was a, a big thing. And if you had the mullet to go with it, it was even better. Um, I wish I had photographic evidence to show you this morning, but I'll spare you uh, those details. It was, it was a fabulous time. Oddly enough, this show premiered in 1984, which also coincided with the very first year of our marriage. And for me, that was the year of liberty, because I was only 18 years old when we got married. He was uh, at the mature age of 23. And, um, and so I moved straight out of the, my home and out of the protection of my parents and, and, um, and their, you know, they were responsible for me and all of the rules that went along with that and moved out into this fabulous little trailer, you know, where we set up housekeeping together and there were no rules. And it was the most fabulous thing. I was just, see, you know, some of y'all went to college in between there, but I didn't do that. I didn't have the dormitory experience. I went straight from my bedroom at home, where there were all kinds of rules, to living with my husband, where we could stay up as late as we wanted. It was amazing. We could go to Taco Bell at 11.30 at night. Taco Bell wasn't open all night like they are now. Back then, you know, they like shut down a little earlier. We could make thousand calorie milkshakes at midnight and not feel sorry about it. We should have felt sorry about it, but we didn't. And we could do all of these things and it was, it was fabulous. We had all of the, this liberty. And I just remember relishing in that freedom. Although I recognize we also had the responsibility to pay our own bills and to, uh, you know, take care of all of these things. But here's the crazy part. My euphoria at that freedom lasted about two weeks. Because we both had jobs, I was still going to college, and it was important that we were awake at those events, right? And so suddenly, the freedom that we had was like, oh, our liberty does have limits. It has limits, and some of those limits are at the, at the expense of our bodies, what our bodies could even sustain were, were part of the limits. And so it was annoying to figure this thing out. I realized that we might have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Sound familiar? I have the right to do anything, but we learned quickly that not everything is constructive. Man cannot live on Taco Bell and milkshakes alone. I'm telling you, you think you can, but you cannot. You must, and it's annoying to figure that out. There really are limits to liberty. And the important thing is that you have to think before you act. When you're living by the rules, it's so much simpler. All you have to do is follow the rules. It's so much more difficult 
to have to think about what's good for you. Living by liberty is infinitely more difficult than living by the law. When I was uh, in high school, I had the opportunity in my senior year of high school to go to Germany with um, my brother and his family. Uh, his in-laws were serving um, on an airbase in uh, Frankfurt, Germany, and so we had the opportunity. I got to fly along with them and, and go over and kind of experience some of Europe um, when I was 18 years old. And I'll never forget driving on the Audubon. How many of you have ever driven on the Audubon? You know what I'm talking about? There's this fabulous strip of highway in Germany where there is no speed limit. Now, there's a, there is a suggested speed limit of 130 kilometers an hour, which I guess is about 80 miles per hour. But basically, you can go as fast as you can sustain yourself. And if you kill yourself, they just kind of scrape you off the road and move on. And, and, and it happens. When you have an accident on the Audubon, it is almost always fatal. Um, and here's what was intriguing to me. It was not like, it, the, the danger of driving on the Audubon had nothing to do, really, with your ability to control your own vehicle. What was amazing was that the danger of driving on the Audubon is the difference in speed between people who were going a lousy 50 mile an hour next to somebody who was going 110. And you were on them like that, and there's very little time to react. I mean, and, and they're much better. Trust me, they don't stay in the left-hand lane over there. You, you do not live in that left-hand lane. You get out of the way in a hurry. But it took a lot more skill to live like that when, you, you know, you're living above the law in some way. All right? I, I just think that living by the law is incredibly easy. It's, it's just so much easier when you don't have to make decisions. It's a little bit like going to the bowling alley and having the bumpers placed over the gutters of your bowling alley any idiot can throw a ball down that lane, right? And it can bounce its way. All... Some of us folks are living like that. We're living our lives, just bouncing our lives off of the boundaries and the borders of what has been set in front of us instead of taking the effort to make good decisions and live with intention and actually aim at what we're headed for. And so I think it's time for some of us to think about growing up and living and taking responsibility for our own actions. We're calling this message, No Regrets. There's uh, the famous uh, tattoo that you've maybe seen that a few people get. And, and there's so many of these on the internet. It's frightening to think that that many people have done that. I'm hoping that some of them are fake. But the idea of living without regrets, and then when you, you, know, you spell that wrong, you're going to live with that the rest of your life. There are some things we do in life that we do live with the rest of our life. This entire, uh, the basis of this entire series can be found in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and, and so that's where we're going to start today. And, um, and I'm just going to give a caveat, I don't see too many children in here, but I'm just going to give a caveat that this may be a message for a mature audience, not because of anything I'm going to say, but because of the subject of this scripture. So I'm just going to read it, and you can decide, you know, it's God's word, what you want to do. We have a great children's department, all right? 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know 
that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. That's going to be the message for today. How do we honor God with the bodies that he has given us? Now, I don't want this to be a big message of condemnation. I really hope and pray that this is a message where we recognize where we have been, where we are going, and what we want to let go of. So there's going to be an opportunity at the end for us to really lay down some things that we have maybe been carrying around with us for a long time. Let me set up what's going on here a little bit. The Corinthians are a group of people who are in a church that Paul has planted years ago. I don't know exactly how long between when he started this church and when uh, he writes this letter, but it is very clear that he is answering some of their questions. Nobody has access to the, to, to the questions. The letter that came, if it was in the form of a letter, or if it was just verbal, we don't have that either. But it is clear that he's answering some questions. And one of the major questions he's answering is about this issue of their liberty, particularly in their practices with food and sexual activity. He, he's primarily answering those. And so he says this a couple of times. You say, I have the right to do anything. And it has become an excuse to do anything. And he's saying, yes, we're living above the law. You're no longer bound to Jewish law. You are living beyond that. But don't pretend there's no limits to what you're doing. There are still limits to, to what is good for you. You know, you think you have the right to do everything. You know, and we think today in America that this, that this uh, unbelievable emphasis on our rights came with the American Revolution. <laughs> this idea of being able to have rights to do what we want has been around for a much, much longer than that. We're actually behind the times. And Paul is saying, you don't live under the law anymore, you live above the law. Remember when Jesus came, and Paul is preaching Jesus' gospel. Jesus did not preach Paul's gospel. So Jesus comes along in the Sermon on the Mount and he says, you know, the law says that you should not murder anyone. I'm telling you, don't even hate your neighbor." The law says you should not commit adultery. I'm telling you, don't even lust after someone. Jesus came and, and, and took the law to another level where you're going to have to make conscious decisions about what does that mean? How do you know when you're hating someone? How do you know when you are lusting after someone? How do you know when you are no longer honoring God with your thoughts and with your body? You're going to have to make those decisions. And this is a quandary for New Testament Christians. Because remember that the Corinthians and all of these people that Paul had led to Jesus were not Jews. And so the Jewish believers had come along and they're like, listen, it's okay. We believe that Jesus can save them too, but they still have to follow all those laws that we had. And they had this big blow up about it. And in Acts 15, they finally settled uh, their really basically the first church business meeting of all time. If you've ever been to a church business meeting, this is what they had. Look it up. There's a lot of fighting and people are not happy. And finally, this is what they come down to. And this is what 
James says, the brother of Jesus says. Acts 15, 19 through 20. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from meat of strangled animals, and from blood. So it really came down to caution on two fronts. The things we consume and the things that we do with our bodies. And folks, we could preach on that for the rest of eternity and pretty much deal with everything that we struggle with, couldn't we? I mean, a lot of it just really comes down to that. The, the stuff that we consume and the stuff that we do with our bodies. Those poor choices that we make in our lives. So let's get into these two simple issues that, in my opinion, we tend to lowball in our lives. We just kind of diminish them. Number one, what we consume. What we consume. Yes, you have the right to eat an entire sleeve of Girl Scout cookies in one setting, every night, until you run out. Thank you, Jesus, that most of us fail to buy a year's supply, although my husband takes a strong run at it. I mean, we fill up the freezer. You know what I'm saying? I mean, if we really had a year's supply, the clothes in our closet would probably be a different size. I don't know, because it's just that sort of thing, all right? Um, yes, you have the right to pop over-the-counter drugs like candy if you want, and nobody's going to stop you. But you. And you may even be popping prescription pills like candy, but you're probably hiding that a little bit better. We tend to smoke, chew, drink, and eat ourselves into oblivion. And Paul is saying, yes, you have the right to do anything you want to do. But I'm telling you, don't be mastered by anything. Do not be mastered by anything. No, we are not bound by the dietary laws of the Old Testament. But now we have to make a cognitive decision about that second piece of chocolate cake. Now we have to decide whether or not that's good for Or any substance that makes you feel calmer. Chocolate cake makes me feel calmer. I like chocolate cake to calm me down. But, but whatever that is for you, what is it that you turn to for relief? in this world, in this crazy world that is beginning to master you? What is it that you cannot let go of? What has begun to gain mastery over you? You know, I think we consider addiction to be this new vice that's kind of uh, singular to our society. But it is clear from Paul's writings that it was not. This is something that this generation knew about. And Paul even talks about it in his letter to Romans. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Isn't that somebody describing addiction? I want free from this, but I'm doing it anyway. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And he's telling the Corinthians, do not be mastered by anything. And then he moves on in Corinthians and he says, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You have the right to any of these substances that are legal in this society. How does it honor God? Whatever it is that we are consuming. The second thing that Paul spends the, the bulk of this uh, passage pursuing is this issue of sexual immorality. So let's talk about this a little bit. The big question is, what counts as sexual immorality? You know, I think it's intriguing that even a former president was stumped by this question. 
You know, we, it's like, well, does that, what, what counts? What counts? Young people want to know all the time, what, what counts is this? If you're married, you know what counts, right? You know what this is. Um, and since the internet is the answer of all earthly problems, I decided to look here. And this is what I came up with, and this was too great to not include in the message today. I, I, I don't even know if this, I couldn't even find the site that really uh, was holding this up. It was just one of these things that prompted. I was looking for the word immorality, and it came up this way, amoral slash immoral. I didn't put it up here. Both have to do with, the right, with right and wrong, but amoral means having no sense of either, like a fish. I, I don't know. I guess insects don't either, like a fish. But the evil immoral describes someone who knows the difference, doesn't care, and says, mwahaha, while twirling a mustache. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That was the definition of immorality, and I love that. Saying mwahaha as you twirl the mustache. What? I don't even understand. Can we just quit pretending that we don't know what sexual immorality is? We know what it is. But let's just have a quick list, just in case you're confused, all right? Fornication, adultery, extramarital sex of any kind, right? These are, that's sexual immorality. So to put it more positively, here in the vineyard, and specifically in this church, we believe that sexual expression is reserved for one man and one woman within the commitment and covenant of marriage. It's that simple. Outside of that situation, it is not for you. It is not something that has to be expressed. Jesus lived on this earth and died without that expression, and, and he survived. It, it is possible. It's not a right of our kind. Paul talks very clearly, flee from this. Flee from sexual immorality. This is not something that you stand up and you fight against. This is something where you take flight because all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but he who sins sexually sins against their own body. So honor God with your bodies. But let's look at a few of the lies this morning that I think the enemy sends to us to get us to discount this issue of sexual immorality, this particular vice in our life. Number one, he wants to tell us this isn't really sin. God doesn't really care about this stuff. That warnings against sexual immorality are merely caution signs, right? Nope, they're full-on red hexagon stop signs, okay? And instead, I think in our world, we just continue to treat this as like a speeding ticket. You know, I mean, it, when it comes to the laws of the land, we know that some laws carry deeper consequences than others, and so we kind of gauge which ones we're willing to break and which ones we blow past, and it's no big deal. And, and, and speeding tickets, a lot of us are like, it's not a big deal, and I confess to this, you know, I don't go the speed limit all the time, but it's like, you know, you, as long as you make sure the coast is clear and as long as you don't get caught and you're fine and you don't have to pay the penalty, as long as my insurance doesn't go up, whatever, and if you do get caught, just pay the fine, do the community service, and move on. And I think that sometimes we have reduced sexual sin to a level of a speeding ticket. And we think that's all it is, and it's not. It's a much bigger deal than this. It is so important that this is the primary way that God describes his relationship to us. 
I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but it's true. This is how God describes his relationship to us. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, if you're unfamiliar with Scripture, Jesus Christ is described as the bridegroom, and he is coming back someday for his bride. And at the end of time, in Revelation, there is all this description about a wedding feast. We're going to sit down, and there's going to be feasting and banqueting, and it has to do with a wedding. And there is description of the kind of clothes that the bride should wear, being the righteous acts of the saints, being white linen, the way a bride prepares herself. This is such a big deal that throughout the Old Testament, whenever God's chosen people, the, the, the children of Israel, whenever they would um, not follow God, it seemed like they were on this wheel. They would like follow him really hard under one person's authority and kingship and under another evil king then they would wander off and do their own thing and prophet after prophet would call that adultery prophet after prophet would call that prostituting themselves out to other gods in other words when we reject god that betrayal is likened to someone who is betraying a spouse in sexual immorality, in a way that is so offensive, in a way that cuts to the bond that has been established there. That's how important this is to Jesus. I think it's interesting that Jesus doesn't use, or God doesn't use a spat between siblings to describe what it feels like when we reject him. No, he says it's like when a wife runs away from me. And, and the prophet Hosea and his wife are examples of that. We could go on and on and on. So Paul emphasizes this issue in nearly all of his letters to the churches. So I've got a lot of scripture here, but I just want you to listen to it. This is the way he's emphasizing this to the new believers. To the Galatians, he says this, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality impurity and debauchery those all kind of count the same idolatry and witchcraft hatred discord jealousy fits of rage selfish ambition dissensions factions and envy drunkenness orgies and the like i warn you as i did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of god you have the right to live any way you want, but he's saying you won't inherit the kingdom of God if you live like this. To the Ephesians, he says this, but among you there must not even be a hint, not even a hint. That means to the people who are watching, they should not be able to look at your lifestyle and wonder about sexual immorality. Right? There should not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them. One more, he says to the Romans this, let us behave decently. As in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. This is a big deal. Let me tell you this. This is such a big deal that people who don't follow Jesus get it. Believe it or not, folks come to us. I've just met with people recently who've said, I'm really feeling drawn to God. I really feel like he's, you know, I, I want to... I feel like I'm getting really close to surrendering to him. But you know what their hang-up is? 
I know people who say they follow Jesus, but then they're sleeping with their boyfriend or their girlfriend. Or they're living with people they're not married to. And I don't want to be like that. I want to make sure that when I surrender to Jesus, that I'm going to be able to follow him. And so when we disregard the issue of sexual immorality, we actually keep people from experiencing Jesus. It's a big deal. Now, hear me. I am not talking about perfection here. I'm not talking about our ability to walk the line all the time. But people watching us know the difference. They know the difference when you are aiming for something and your ball goes in the gutter right? And they know the difference And when you're just winging that ball down the, the lane and letting it bounce off of whatever side it goes on. They know the difference between that. And we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about our, your feet pointed toward Jesus because other people are watching and it affects that. Jesus cares about his lost people experiencing him and whether or not our cavalier attitude towards sexual immorality is keeping people from it. Number two, the second end of the lie that the enemy gives us is that it's not really that important. It's only a physical act. It's not really that important, that there's no psychological or emotional consequences. And deep down inside, we all know that's wrong. We all know that's wrong. We all know that it takes people years and years and years to get over issues that involve our sexuality whether we have been violated as a child, whether we made choices as a young person that we wish we hadn't made. You know, it's, it's different. Even this past week in the news, are you kidding me? We're not talking about somebody being charged with stealing somebody's lunch money in college, right? Whether it happened, whether it didn't happen, really doesn't matter. But when you bring sexuality into the picture, it heightens the whole thing. It's huge, right? It, people, you're not going to go to counseling when you're 40 over somebody stealing your lunch money. But if somebody takes your sexuality, if somebody talks you out of it, you may be think, talking to someone later in life as you struggle to deal with that because it's not just physical. It goes to the core of who we are. And instinctively, I think we all know it's a big deal in spite of what sitcoms and the movies and our music tells us. It wants us to believe that this is the most casual activity on the planet and it won't harm you and it won't hurt you. And I'm telling you, everything we do becomes part of our story and someday, young people who aren't married yet, you're going to tell someone that story. And you're going to want to be able to tell the story that is good. Because it's going to be a difficult story when you come out with things that you've done. And we find so many reasons to say why this is okay. And I've heard some of these. As I'm meeting with young people, I've heard people say, well, it isn't that great anyway. Sin is not graded on how well and, and how much you enjoy it. Right? Well, it is so great, I can't help myself. That's still not a thing, right? Jesus is there. Well, if I refuse, this person might leave me. That's legitimate. But you know what? If they'll leave you over that, they weren't worth keeping to start with, right? You protect things that are valuable, and you're worth more than that. Again, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Number three, let me march through. I've got a couple more. Number three, the rules don't apply to me. We're getting married anyway. We hear this all the time, right? An engagement ring is not a free pass on sexual immorality. Plans to marry someday 
is not a free pass. Many Christian people have good intentions, but then they fail to keep their distance and decide it doesn't matter anymore. And the enemy is trying to convince us that our purity isn't worth protecting, that it's no longer um, a valuable thing. Maybe I was uh, violated as a child. Maybe I gave that away on spring break or in high school or college. Maybe I've been married before, and so it doesn't feel that novel to me, so it's not that big of a deal. And it's, I'm telling you, that is a lie of the enemy. It's not too late to back that train up, and many couples have done that. You do not age out of sexual immorality. Honoring God with our bodies is important no matter what age we are. And finally, the main way we allow ourselves to be overtaken, not just by sexual immorality, but also by the things we consume, is this fourth lie that the enemy gives us, and it's this. I can handle it. I can handle it. The definition of immorality, by the way, includes immoral conduct and evil habit or practice. There is a repetitive nature to the things that control us. You know, we start out feeling very much in control of everything that we're doing. I can quit anytime I want. I only drink once a week. I don't need that drug every day. I can walk away from that internet site anytime I want. But in fact, over time, the reward that our bodies receive from the activities we participate in and the substances that we take in reinforce the patterns in our lives. And we cannot get out of them alone. Oftentimes, we cannot get out of them alone. Now listen, I am no expert on addiction, and I am not pretending to be. And some of you have a lot more experience with this from your, within yourselves and with your children and with family members than I will ever have. But I will tell you what I've noticed from 25 years of ministry. The people that I know who struggle with addiction don't get anywhere until they admit they can't do it alone. That's what I've noticed. They, they don't get anywhere. They do not make solid progress until they admit that they cannot do it alone. They recognize that they need help. When they can admit that issue and get that help, it's, in, it's integral to their recovery. When they realize they're not in total control. When we realize that we need God, when we need others, when we need accountability, then we are ready to get past these vices that often define our private life. And it involves surrender. It involves surrender. It involves giving up. It involves not being strong enough to do this. That's when healing comes, when I can say, I can't handle this anymore. Jesus, I need you. Take my life and let me honor you with my body, my choices, my habits, and my practices. When we realize how much God loves us, we realize that we don't have to live with shame, with regrets. Now, let me say something about guilt and shame, because I do not want this message to be something where you feel like you've been piled up on based on your past experiences. I believe there is a strong difference between guilt and shame. I believe guilt is God-given. It is something that brings us to a point of repentance. It is something that we feel we know about, and it makes us turn around and go the other direction. But having turned around and gone the other direction, shame becomes this coat. It becomes this coat that the enemy keeps putting on us. And it can be heavy, like there's rocks in your pocket. 
And that shame is something the enemy wants you to carry around everywhere you go. And Jesus did not call us to live in shame. He came to remove that shame from us. So this morning, I'm hoping that we can leave some stuff up here this morning. As we go into this last song, let's come to our feet. I want you to have an opportunity for prayer this morning. Now, I know these are sensitive subjects, and and we're like, I'm not going up there. Somebody's going to judge me for all of this. But maybe this morning you realize that something from your past is something you've never really confessed or gotten off of your chest, and and you're still carrying it. Maybe it's not even an issue in your life now, but you know that you've never really dropped it. You've never really let go of it. And it's time. This is the morning when you want to come clean. When you want to get rid of that. Scripture tells us to confess our sins one to another, not to blast them to all eternity for everyone to hear. We're not going to put anything on the monitor, but you know you need to come up and say, Jesus, I'm done with this. And I want to walk in freedom today. Maybe you know that of all the things we've talked about in this series, in this vice series, there is something in your life that's still controlling you. We've talked about materialism and greed. We've talked about alcohol. We've talked about just general things on that first week that I don't remember the details of. And maybe there's something that's still controlling you and you don't want to be mastered by it anymore. You don't want to have anything controlling you. I want to give you a chance to break free today. Break free from the chains, from the fear, from the guilt, from the concern that somebody's going to find out about it. Because as we go into this last song, you're going to hear the line, we don't have time to maintain these regrets. You don't have time for that. You do not have time to spend the rest of your life regretting things that happened to you, things that you participated in, whatever it is. You don't have time for that. Hebrews 12.1 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Folks, this morning in this setting, you are surrounded with witnesses. You are surrounded with that cloud of witnesses. Take advantage of it knowing that we can still run with perseverance, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Don't walk out this morning the same way that you came in. Anytime during the song, you can come up and any of these people will be happy to pray for you.